How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to American History with Professor Cheryl Boswell. All right. So in this podcast, we're going to be looking at it's a little different, uh, more of like a societal or cultural history of 18th century America. But we do look at from starting around the late 1680s, almost 1690, moving into the late 1760s, just right kind of on the eve of the American Revolution. What's going on here? So let's get started here. All right. So as European rivals are laying claim to more and more of North America, you know, you got France, Spain, and England all vying for a piece of the pie. Nervous Spanish officials are, you know, looking at all the maps and who's all around them. You know, around the former Aztec Empire, Spain's controlling very enormous cities, booming towns, agricultural villages. This region is still home to millions despite, you know, waves of epidemics that keep coming. In the northern areas, you know, they have uh, silver mines that they're protecting. And to try and protect them, Spain has to look even farther north on their maps in places that are controlled entirely by Indians for the most part. And there ends up kind of being some defensive expansion into Texas. So nowhere does the French seem more menacing than in Texas. So one of the many blank spots on Spanish maps is Texas. They're not really highly concerned about colonizing the Texas area. And LaSalle's adventure down, you know, the Mississippi... It could have turned out differently, uh, but before he died, the Frenchman had pledged to invade northern New Spain with an army of thousands of Indians who he believed had a deadly hatred of the Spanish. And so fearful that another French expedition might actually get an army like this, in 1690 Spain began establishing missions among the native people of Texas. By the early 1720s, the Spanish had fortified their claim on Texas with 10 Franciscan missions, four presidios or military garrisons, and the beginnings of civilian settlement on the San Antonio River. So missions are still disappointing Franciscans and natives both. Uh, Missionaries baptize Indians, you know, by the thousands. They were hoping to create an orderly regimented communities where converts are protected from outside influence and taught to be, you know, industrious and hardworking and devout in their faith and beliefs. But Indians insist on coming and going whenever they please. Many seek the food and sanctuary that missions offer only to leave periodically to rendezvous with family members, uh, hunt, harvest wild plant foods, their frequent comings and goings kind of confuse the missionaries. And matters are even worse for Franciscans in East Texas because uh, the relatively prosperous Caddo Indians have no need of Spanish crops or protection and prefer to trade with the more liberal French in Louisiana. And however successful they were at you know, retaining autonomy, Indians throughout Texas pay a very steep price for any benefits they get from missions. And... Hi, Jorge. Sorry, my dog just decided to come cuddle on my lap for some loves. You're not going to say hi, Jorge? No? Okay. 
So if you hear little jingles, that's my dog. Sorry, folks. But even worse are missions. These are very ideal incubators for epidemic diseases. In the 1730s alone, smallpox kills more than a thousand mission Indians near San Antonio. Other illnesses become very commonplace and what were often very filthy, cramped buildings, children found missions especially dangerous in the 18th century. Mission San Antonio, for example, only one in three newborns survive to their third birthday. And meanwhile, royal administrators are encouraging Spanish immigration to Texas, but with little success. 1731, the province's non-native population barely amounts to 500 men, women, and children. And by 16, 1760, the figure slightly more than doubled. But elsewhere, the region remains in the hands of unconquered Indians, whose regional power just seems like it's expanding more and more. So at first, Apaches did most to threaten Spain's ambitions in Texas. And their raids thin out Spanish herds, preventing ranching and farming communities from being able to expand and threaten the missions with destruction. Spanish uh, respond with uh, slave raids on Apache camps and the violence just escalates. By the 1730s, however, there's a new force that is even greater than the Apaches. And they called themselves Numunu, the people, their enemies came to call them Comanches. Merging out of the foothills of the Rockies in the late 16th century, Comanches acquired horses, they moved permanently onto the plains, and quickly become some of the most formidable equestrian warriors in history. They ally with Indians who can provide them with French guns and ammunition from Louisiana, and they take off on a program of territorial expansion. By the mid-18th century, Comanches drive most Apaches from the plains and take over the very rich bison hunting territories on the southern plains. And without bison, Apaches turn more and more to stealing Spanish animals to survive. Spaniards from Santa Fe to San Antonio soon find themselves at war with both Apaches and Comanches. New Mexico was often coming in conflict with Navajo and Ute Indians as well. Much of northern New Spain was a th big area of desolation, abandoned villages all up and down the Rio Grande testifying to the limits of Spanish power. And the Spanish accused the barbarians of animalistic savagery, but all sides inflict horrors. So outside the town of Tucson, for example, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pedro de Allende boasts that he had decapitated a fallen Apache in front of his comrades, the dead man's comrades, away from the battlefield. A very prominent Spaniard noted his people accused the Indians of cruelty, but he admitted he did not know what opinion they had of the Spaniards. So by the 1780s, nearly everyone has had enough of war. And a Comanche leader helps broker peace with Spanish authorities in 1786. You know, this is long after. I know I said we were going right up to the eve of American Revolution, but the Texas region is kind of different because it's not really on the radar for anyone back on the East Coast, really. But uh, 
these new allies with the peace that the Comanche leader brokers with the Spanish authorities uh, cooperates to entice or threaten Utes, Navajos, even Apaches into peace as well. So northern New Spain gradually will enter a period of relative peace expansion and economic growth. Changes are going to be most dramatic in New Mexico. Spanish subjects open up new farms and ranches. They enlarge their flocks and herds, devote new energy to local manufacturing. And as the non-Indian population grows in New Mexico, which it gets to about 20,000 by the end of 18th century, new roads funded by the crown uh, help to ease the isolation of the province. There's increased trade that allows caravans to set out from Santa Fe for Chihuahua City once or even twice a year. And some of the new Mexicans who profited from these newfound opportunities patronize arts and uh, skilled craftsmen as well to help fund them. By the late 18th century, there's a very distinctive New Mexican culture that's emerged. It's marked by new traditions and crafts like woodworking and weaving, uh, as well as religious art and practice. In a Master craftsman known as the Laguna Centero, he helps define this movement by training local apprentices in his workshop and making pieces for wealthy patrons. And they, Laguna Centero and all his apprentices, others he inspired, began making very exquisite portraits of saints on pine boards known as retablos, uh, hide paintings, elaborate altar screens for churches, wooden statues of saints or bultos, all these art firms still associated with New Mexican folk culture today. And then there was also Spanish California. Yeah, this was the last major colonial project in North America for Spain is in California. So like the colonies in Texas and Florida, settlement is a lot of anxiety over foreign competition, this time with the Russians moving south from Alaska. And Spanish first explored the California coast in 1542, but it's not going to be until 1768 the crown authorizes permanent colonization. And so a joint expedition of military men and Franciscans uh, led by Gaspar de Patola, the physically frail but still very strong-willed friar Junipero Serra, they brave shipwrecks, scurvy, earthquakes to establish, you know, these kind of ramshackle presidios or military garrisons and missions at San Diego and Monterey. So like their colleagues in Texas and Florida, Franciscans in California try to entice the Indians into missions with promises of food, shelter, instruction, and protection. At the same time, the Indians see the world all around them changing. In Monterey, for example, the imported pigs, sheep, mules, horses, cows, they all multiply at astonishing speed. And they had never really seen these animals before because they were brought over with the Europeans. And these animals will radiate out from the mission in Presidio. They overgraze, annihilate all the native plants. Soon, weeds and plants the Spanish had unwittingly brought with them spread all throughout the region. And since their lands are now changed by overgrazing and these invasive plant species, the populations are diminished by epidemics and they're hampered by falling birth rates, the native families around Monterey abandon their villages and will either flee to the interior or just surrender to the discipline and danger of mission life. 
and Indians provide labor and food for all the missions, presidios, and three colonial towns of California. Women in California throughout the Spanish world enjoyed quite a few legal rights that were denied to women in English speaking areas. So when the parents die, Spanish law ensures daughters inherit property equally with sons. English law in contrast allows fathers to craft wills however they wish. If an Englishman dies without a will, his eldest son inherits all the land and any buildings on it. Daughters and younger sons get just a share of the remaining personal property. In marriage, Spanish women retained control over their personal property and ownership of any dowry or sum of money they bring into the union. They also maintained the right to buy and sell land and to legally represent themselves in court. Married English women have virtually no control over any kind of property. They can't write a will, initiate any legal action without their husband's consent. These differences in law persist even into widowhood. So Spanish widows are legally entitled not only to their original dowries, but also to at least one half of all the property they and their deceased husbands had accumulated during the marriage. Their English counterparts have no right to their dowries and widowhood, only to control over a third of their dead husband's property. And even this was temporary. So in contrast to Spanish law, English law maintained that the third share would revert to the deceased husband's family upon the widow's death. So like Spain's uh, vast and sprawling territorial claims in North America, France's imperial ambitions are nothing if not grand as well, right? French colonial maps lead them to the heart of the continent, a massive imperial wedge stretching from Newfoundland southwest to the Mississippi Delta, and then northwest across the Great Plains and into the Pacific Northwest through Upper Canada to the North Atlantic. So despite these grand claims, most of 18th century French Americans continue to live along the St. Lawrence River. They dwell in farming communities up and down the river valley between the towns of Montreal and Quebec, which is the capital of New France. Jesuit missions also line the river, ministering to native converts. After a brief boost from colonization in the 1660s and 1670s, the French population grows almost totally through natural increase. Fortunately for France, the colonists excel at natural increase nurturing large thriving communities and doubling their population every generation, so it is pretty nice. To the west and north of New France, the in the country known as Pédenhout, the French venture looked quite different. So here, forts and missions rather than farms or towns anchored the French ambition. And the goodwill of Indian people provides the anchor to them. So although certainly willing to use violence, the French in North America recognize that they are too few to get secure their interests through force alone. France gains an edge over its rivals in the interior by being useful to the Indians, primarily through Algonquian-speaking nations that spread across eastern Canada and the upper Mississippi, vastly outnumbered by Indians throughout most of the territory that they claimed in North America, France remains very deeply dependent on the native people. And that dependence means compromise, right? The two people had radically divergent expectations about warfare, trade, marriage, child raising, religion, food, beauty, many other areas of life. 
but few cultural differences seemed as difficult to bridge as those concerning law. In 1706, for example, men associated with a prominent Ottawa leaner, leader known as Le Pesant killed a priest and a French soldier outside of Fort Detroit. Enraged French authorities demanded that Le Pesant be surrendered so that he could be tried and once found guilty, executed for murder. Ottawa leaders counted by offering to replace the dead Frenchman with Indian slaves. So raising the dead this way was a very common Ottawa remedy in cases of murder between allies because it helped avoid a potentially disastrous cycle of blood revenge. So little odd, little different, right? But that's how it was. And forced into uncomfortable compromises in the North, authorities in Paris hope to establish a colony on the Gulf Coast that can be more profitable and even more French. So after La Salle's failure in Texas, it falls to Pierre Lamont de Iberville to establish French Louisiana. He's a veteran sailor and soldier, spends much of the 1690s attacking British settlements in Newfoundland in the North Atlantic. He is sent to the Gulf in 1698, and he inaugurates the new colony of Louisiana with a post at Biloxi Bay. And D'Aberville's successors established settlements at Mobile Bay and in 1718, the town of New Orleans. Crown officers and entrepreneurs envision an agricultural bonanza, expecting Louisiana to have far more in common with the Caribbean's profitable sugar islands than with the paid in hope. Nothing goes according to plan, though. Indians here are forcing the French into painful concessions. Louisiana comes into conflict with the Chickasaws, which are a very powerful confederacy. 1729, the Natchez Indians push back. They kill or capture around 500 colonists. So underfunded and usually neglected by the crown, Louisiana's official become notoriously corrupt and arbitrary. <clears throat> Uh, the Gulf Coast uh, is also without a lot of colonists. Uh, it gets a reputation among would-be French migrants as being unattractive and unhealthy. When colonists are not fighting Indians, they contend with heat, humidity, hurricanes, droughts, crop failures, never-ending battles to turn swamps and forests into farmland, and there's also the scourges of malaria and yellow fever. <clears throat> By 1731, about two-thirds of the French that had journeyed to Louisiana, they had died or fled. Still, like New Mexico, Canada, California, and Texas, colonial Louisiana perseveres and slowly becomes more populous and more prosperous. Nearly 4,000 French men and women and children will call the colony home by 1746. Their fortunes in large part came to depend on an another even larger group of newcomers which were African slaves to French Louisiana. Within a year of its founding, New Orleans imports nearly 6,000 slaves, mostly men brought directly from Africa, but Louisiana tobacco and later indigo proves inferior to the varieties that are being exported from the British colonies and the sudden influx of Africans challenges French control. In 1729, some newly arrived slaves joined forces with the Natchez Indians in a rebellion, and the alliance sends waves of panic through the colony, whose population had more slaves than free French by this time. 
The colonists retaliate in a devastating counterattack, enlisting both the Choctaw Indians, rivals of the Natchez, and other enslaved blacks who were promised freedom in return for their support. The planners' costly victory persuades French authorities to stop importing slaves. Nonetheless, blacks continue to make up a majority of all Louisianans. By the middle of the 18th century, nearly all were native-born. The vast majority remain enslaved, but their work routines, like tending cattle, cutting timber, producing naval stores, manning boats, allows them relative autonomy of movement. But the greatest prize of freedom was awarded to black men who served in the French militia, defending the colony from the English and Indians, as well as capturing runaway slaves. The descendants of these black militiamen would become the core of Louisiana's free black community. So male subjects throughout French America stood ready to perform militia duty, formally or informally. They had to. Disputes with Indians proved uh, very common, more to the point European wars frequently spilled over in North America. 1689, England joined the Netherlands in the League of Augsburg, which is several German-speaking states at the time, and a war against France. While the main struggle rages in Europe, French and English colonials, joined by their Indian allies, fight in what was known as King William's War. Peace returns in 1697, but only until the Anglo-French struggle resumes with Queen Anne's War from 1702 to 1713. Yeah, so for a quarter of a century after this, the two countries are waging a kind of cold war. You know, they're always competing for an advantage. At stake is not so much control over people or even territory as control over trade. In North America, France and England uh, vie for success to the Sugar Islands of the Caribbean. They want a monopoly on supplying manufactured goods to Spanish America and dominance of the fur trade. The British had the advantage in numbers, nearly 400,000 subjects in the colonies in 1720 with only about 25,000 French. But this is exactly where the many compromises of France paid off. So long as the French maintain their network of alliances with the powerful natives, British colonies have very little chance of expanding west of the Appalachian Mountains. <clears throat> so British colonials from Maine to the Carolinas distrust the French and resent their empire that they have built. So the English, though, they're preoccupied with their own affairs. By and large, they're uninterested in uniting against New France. Uh, a traveler during the first half of the 18th century would have been struck by how hopelessly divided and disunited the mainland colonies of England were. Uh, they're split by ethnicity, re race, region, wealth, religion. Uh, the British colonies are a very diverse and fragmented lot. One of the largest immigration groups, about 250,000 black men, women, and children had come to the colonies from Africa, you know, in chains and bondage. White arrivals included many Im English immigrants, but also a quarter of a million Scots-Irish, the descendants of a 17th, 17th century, uh, uh, the 17th century Scottish that regretted settling in Northern Ireland, uh, around maybe 135 German 135,000, sorry, Germans, a few thousand Swiss, Swedes, Highland Scots, Spanish Jews. Most non-English white immigrants were fleeing lives torn apart by famine, warfare, religious persecution. 
all of the voyagers, English and non-English, risk, you know, the very hazardous Atlantic crossing, pay for passage, many of them by signing indenture to work as servants in America. And the immigrants and slaves that arrive in the colonies between 1700 and 1775 increase and swell a colonial American population that was already growing dramatically from natural increase. <clears throat> the birth rate, just for example, in 18th century America was triple what it is today. Most women bore between five and eight children, and most children will survive to maturity. So these are big families they're creating. And this astonishing population explosion exemplifies a more gl general global acceleration of population in the second half of the 18th century. So, for example, looking at like China, their 150 million inhabitants in 1700 had doubled to more than 313 million by the end of the century. Europe's total was at about 118 million to oh, over... 187 million over this same period. So this unprecedented global population explosion has several causes. Europe's climate, for one, uh, became warmer and drier, allowing for better harvests. Health and nutrition improves globally with the worldwide spread of Native American crops. Irish farmers discovered that a single acre planted with American potatoes could support an entire family. <clears throat> The tomato adds crucial vitamins to the Mediterranean diet. In China, the American sweet potato thrives in the hilly regions where rice is unable to grow. So dramatic population increase in the British colonies fed by slave imports and immigration natural increase, it makes it hard for colonials to share any common identity. And so almost every aspect of social development sets the Americans at odds with each other. And that process of division and disunity is reflected in this outpouring of new settlers going into the backcountry. So to immigrants from Europe that are very uh, weary of war, the seaboard's established communities must have seemed havens to them, you know, for order and stability. But by the beginning of the 18th century, scarcity of land pushes both native-born and newly arrived families to look to the West. So while descendants of old Yankee families were creating these new communities in frontier New England, immigrants from Europe had more luck obtaining land south of New York. By the 1720s, German and Scots-Irish immigrants, as well as native-born colonists, were pouring into western Pennsylvania. Some settled permanently, others streamed southwards into backcountry of Virginia and the Carolinas. They encountered native-born southerners pressing westward. Living in the west could be very isolating. Um, from a lot of farmsteads or homesteads, it's a day's ride to the nearest courthouse, tavern, or church. Uh, this is forced self-sufficiency that makes the frontier more than anywhere else in America this society of equals. Most families crowd into one-room shacks walled with, you know, crude logs or mud and turf. Ethnic differences heighten the tensions between the established communities on the seaboard and the frontier. People of English descent predominated along the Atlantic coast, whereas German, Scots-Irish, and other white minorities were concentrated in the interior. 
And many English colonials regard these new immigrants as culturally inferior and politically subversive. And German immigrants were generally credited with steadier work habits as well as higher standards of morality and things like personal hygiene. But the uh, clannish groups of like Scots-Irish um, like them, the Germans still preferred to live, trade, and worship among themselves. So while most Americans on the move flocked to the frontier, others swallow the populations of colonial cities. The scale of seaports remains kind of small. All of New York City is clustered at the southern tip of Manhattan Island. The length of Boston or Charleston could be walked in less than half an hour. So they're pretty small at this time. All major colonial cities are seaports. The waterfronts have lots of wharves and shipyards. By the 1750s, the biggest and most populous was Philadelphia. They had straight, neatly paved streets, flagstone sidewalks, three-story brick, build brick buildings. Sorry, Older cities like Boston and New York had a little bit of a medieval aspect. You know, most of their dwellings and shops were wooden structures with tiny windows, low ceilings that were no higher than two stories and had very steeply pitched roofs. The in Boston and New York, their streets were very narrow, cobblestone for the most part. It challenged pedestrians who competed for space with livestock being driven to the butcher, roaming herds of swine, packs of dogs, carts, carriages, horses. You know, it can feel a little claustrophobic, you might say. But uh, commerce, business, the lifeblood of all these seaport economies is managed by merchants that tap the wealth of the surrounding areas. Traders in New York and Philadelphia shipped the Hudson and Delaware Valley surplus of grain and livestock into the West Indies. Boston merchants, they send fish to the Caribbean and Catholic Europe. Mass uh, for ships to England, rum itself to West Africa. Charlestonians export indigo to English dye makers and rice to Southern Europe. No large-scale domestic industry produces goods for a mass market. So instead, craft shops, they fill orders for specific items placed by individual purchasers. Some artisans or craftsmen specialize in maritime trades like shipbuilding, blacksmiths, sailmakers, uh, others like butchers, millers, and distillers. They process and pack raw materials for export and serve the basic needs of their cities. On the lowest rung of the social hierarchy in the seaport are the free and bound workers. So free laborers, mainly young white men and women, uh, craftsmen, artisans, sailors, fishermen, domestic workers like servants, uh, seamstresses, also prostitutes. The ranks of unfree workers were going to be apprentices and indentured servants doing menial labor in shops and on the docks. Black men and women make up a pretty big substantial part of the bound labor force in colonial seaports. The character of slavery there changes during the mid-18th century. As wars are breaking out in Europe, it reduces the supply of white indentured servants, so colonial cities import a large number of Africans. In the two decades after 1730, a third of all immigrants arriving in New York Harbor are black. By 1760, blacks constitute more than three-fourths of all bound laborers in Philadelphia. Working women found a number of opportunities in port cities. 
So young single women from poor families work in wealthier households as maids, cooks, laundresses, seamstresses, or nurses. The highest paying occupations for women were midwifery and dressmaking. Both require long apprenticeships and expert skills, but less than 10% of women in seaports work outside their own homes. Most women spend their workday caring for households, seeing to the needs of husbands and children, tending to gardens and domestic animals, and engaged in spinning and weaving. These are activities crucial to both household and local economies. While city dwellers, maybe one out of every 20 Americans or so, endure more ethnic division, poverty, and crime than country folk, they have more to do. So plays, balls, concerts for the wealthiest, taverns, clubs, celebrations, church service for, church services, sorry, for everyone. Men of every class find diversion in drink or uh, cockfighting where you force the male chickens or roosters to fight each other. Yeah, so there was a lot to do in the cities, not as much to do in the country. But inequalities and divisions between slave and free in the South very much eclipsed those among the seaport dwellers. By 1775, one out of every five Americans was of African ancestry. More than 90% of all black Americans live in the South, most along the seaboard. The character of a slave's life depend to a great extent on whether he or she lives in the Chesapeake or the Lower South. Slaves in the low country of South Carolina and Georgia live on large plantations with as many as 50 other black workers, about half African-born. They have infrequent contact with whites. Their work is extensive. Rice requires constant con cultivation. Black laborers tended young plants and hoed fields in the summer, uh, especially in these mosquito-infested areas. During the winter and early spring, they build dams and canals to regulate the flow of water into the rice fields, but they use a task system where, like, you're given a specific thing to do, and once you complete it, you're done for the day. So the task system, rather than, you know, gang labor, widens this of, window of freedom Sorry, within slavery. Most Africans and African Americans on the Chesapeake live in plantations with less than 20 fellow slaves. So less densely concentrated than the low country, Chesapeake slaves uh, have more contact with whites. So in the Carolinas, their owners tended to be absentee uh, that leave white overseers and black drivers to run the plantations. Chesapeake masters uh, very actively manage their estates and subject their slaves to closer scrutiny. The four decades following 1700 mark the heaviest years of slave importation into the Chesapeake and Carolina regions. The newcomers from Africa had to cope not only with the lingering traumas of capture in the Middle Passage, but also with alien landscapes, new languages, new threats. They had to adjust to their fellow slaves. And the new slaves coming were a number of West, diverse West African people, each with a separate language or dialect and distinctive cultures and kinship systems all their own. They often have very little in common with one another, even less in common with the American-born black minority. Native-born African Americans enjoy better health, command of English, experience in dealing with whites. They're also more likely 
to enjoy a family life because their advantages probably made them the preferred partners of black women who were outnumbered two to one by black men. Since immigrant women waited two or three years before marrying, some immigrant men died before they could find a wife. After the middle of the 18th century, a number of changes creates the growth of black families and the vitality of slave communities. As slave importations uh, start tapering off, the rate of natural reproduction among blacks starts to climb. Gender ratios become more equal. And so these changes along with rise of larger plantations throughout the South makes it easier for black men and women to find partners and start families. The elaborate family networks do develop kind of gradually, slowly, often extending over several plantations in a single neighborhood. As the immigrant generations are replaced by native-born offspring, earlier sources of tension and division within the slave community start to disappear. But black families still remain vulnerable. So if a planner falls on hard times, members of black families might be sold off to different buyers to meet his debts when an owner dies. Black spouses, parents, children might be divided among the surviving heirs. Even under the best circumstances, fathers might be hired out to other planners for long periods or sent to work in distant quarters. Then, as more slaveholders move from the coast to the interior, black family life suffers. Between 1755 and 1782, masters on the move resettle about a third of all adult African Americans living in Tidewater, Virginia. Most slaves forced to journey west were men and women in their teens and early 20s who had begun, they had to begin again this long process of establishing families and neighborhood networks, you know, far away from their family and friends. Black families struggling with a lot of uncertainty, they're sustained by the distinctive African-American culture evolving in the slave community. So a high percentage of Native Africans among the 18th century American black population makes it easier for slaves to retain homeland traditions. Christianity wins a few converts, in part because masters fear baptizing slaves might make them more rebellious, but also because African Americans preferred their traditional religions. Slaves also bring agricultural skills and practices from Africa, as well as folk tales, music, and dances. British North America has no shortage of African Americans who both resist captivity and develop strategies for how they're going to survive. A lot of attempts at escape are very common with recently arrived Africans. And groups of slaves, often made of newcomers from the same tribe, fled inland, formed maroon communities of runaways. These efforts uh, very rarely succeeded because the maroon settlements were too large to go undetected for long. So more acculturated blacks turned to settler subversions. Uh, so domestics and field hands would fake illness, feign stupidity and laziness, break tools, steal from storehouses, hide in the woods for weeks at a time, or just simply take off to visit other plantations. Other slaves uh, trying to escape bondage as solitary individuals would find a new life as craft workers, dock laborers, sailors, in the relative anonymity of seaports. Sometimes slaves rebelled openly. Whites in communities with large numbers of blacks uh, lived in, you know, the dread of arson, poisoning, insurrection. 
And there were four slaves conspiracies reported in Virginia during the first half of the 18th century. South Carolina, more than two decades of uprisings that they were able to stop and abort and insurrection scares as well will culminate in the Stono Rebellion. Back in 1739, this is the largest slave revolt of the colonial period. Nearly 100 African Americans, led by a slave named Jimmy, seized arms from a store in the coastal district of Stono, and they killed several white neighbors before they were caught and killed by the colonial militia. But throughout the 18th century, slave rebellions occurred far less frequently on the mainland in North America than in the Caribbean or Brazil. And whites outnumber blacks in all of the mainland colonies except for South Carolina. Only in Georgia did the rebels have a haven for a quick escape, which was Spanish Florida. So faced with those odds, most slaves reasoned that the risks of rebellion outweighed the prospect for success. Most just wanted families and opportunities for greater personal freedom while within the slave system itself. So where the colonists live, how well they lived, whether they were male or female, native-born or immigrant, slave or free, all these variables created very distinctive worldviews, differing attitudes and assumptions about the individual's relationship to nature and society and God. The diversity of the inner lives of colonists became even more pronounced during the 18th century because of the Enlightenment. This is an intellectual movement that started in Europe during the 17th century. So the leading figures of the Enlightenment, the philosophers, they stressed the power of human reason to promote progress. And they would do this by revealing laws that governed both nature and society. Isaac Newton in England, he charted the orbit of the planets and devised the theory of gravity. John Locke applied reason to the construction of political systems. And France, Voltaire would write essays, novels, plays, criticizing religion, oppressive governments, and censorship. And like many devotees of the Enlightenment, Benjamin Franklin of Philadelphia, he is most impressed by its emphasis on useful knowledge and experimentation. He would ponder air curtains and then invent a stove that heated houses more efficiently. He toyed with electricity and then invented lightning rods to protect buildings in thunderstorms. Other amateur colonial scientists constructed simple telescopes, classified animal species native to North America, or tried to explain epidemics in terms of natural causes. So American colleges helped promote all this enlightenment thinking. Institutions like Harvard, which was founded in 1636, and Yale in 1701, they initially focused on training ministers. By the 18th century, their graduates would include lawyers, merchants, doctors, and scientists. Most offer courses in mathematics and the natural sciences, which taught students algebra and advanced theory, theories like Copernican astronomy and Newtonian physics. By the middle of the 18th century, Enlightenment ideals had given rise to rational Christianity, which led a small but still influential following among Anglicans and liberal Congregationalists in the colonies. And their god wasn't the awesome deity of Calvinists and Lutherans, but instead they saw a benevolent creator who offers salvation to everyone. And they believe God's greatest gift to humankind is reason, which enables all human beings to follow the moral teachings of Jesus. Some embrace deism, which rejects, rejects the divinity of Jesus and looks to nature rather than the Bible for proof of God's existence. 
And Enlightenment philosophy and rational Christianity does little to change the lives of most colonials at this time. Very few colonial readers have interest or the background necessary to tackle the learned writings of Enlightenment philosophies. So the great majority still explain the workings of the world in terms of divine providence rather than natural law. Church attendance was running the highest in northern colonies where about 80% of the population turned out for public worship on the Sabbath. <clears throat> in the south, because of the greater distances involved in shortage of clergy, about half of colonials regularly attended Sunday services. Many ministers grew alarmed over the influence of rational Christianity. They also worried about isolated frontier families abandoning Christianity altogether. And exaggerated as these fears may have been, they gave rise to a major religious revival that sweeps the colonies during the middle decades of the 18th century, known as the Great Awakening. And this first appears in the 1730s among Presbyterians and Congregationalists in the middle colonies and New England. Many ministers in these churches preached an evangelical message, emphasizing the need for individuals to experience a new birth through religious conversion. And among them was a man named Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he was a pastor of a congregational church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And Edwards' Calvinist preaching combined moving description of God's grace with terrifying portrayals of eternal damnation. These local revivals of the 1730s were kind of tremors to compared to the earthquake of religious enthusiasm that shakes up the colonies with the arrival in 1739 this fall of a man named George Whitfield. It's spelled like Whitefield, but it's pronounced Whitfield. And so this handsome boy preacher from England, he is going to electrify the crowds all the way from Georgia, New, New Hampshire during a two-year tour of the colonies. And he and his many imitators among all the colonial ministers turned the church into a theater. They enlivened sermons with dramatic gestures, flowing tears, gruesome depictions of hell. And the drama of these performances appeal to people of all classes, ethnic groups, and races. By the time Whitfield sails back to England in 1741, thousands of awakened souls are joining older churches or forming new ones. And Whitfield leaves behind a bit of controversy. So many awakened church members now openly criticize their masters as cold, unconverted, and uninspiring. To supply the missing fire, some laymen took to exhorting any audience willing to listen. The most popular ministers became itinerants, traveling like Whitfield from one town to another. Northern churches would splinter and bicker over the Great Awakening, but all these revivalism fires spread all throughout the South and the backcountry. And from the mid-1740s until the 1770s, there's going to be dozens, if not hundreds, of new Presbyterian and Baptist churches formed, which sparks some controversy. A lot of ardent Presbyterians disrupt Anglican worship by unleashing packs of dogs in local chapels, which is kind of not nice, <laughs> if you might say. But county officials, uh, prodded by some resentful Anglican parsons, will harass, fine, and imprison Baptist ministers. And so there's a diverse lot of Americans find themselves continually at odds with each other. They argue over religion in the Enlightenment. They're conflicted over ra racial and ethnic tensions, divided between, you know, the coastal and backcountry cultures. 
Benjamin Franklin, you know, who makes it his business to know, understands the depth of these divisions better than most. You know, even he harbors hopes for political unity among all the colonists that are so splintered. You know, because after all, most of them are English, and so at least they had that in common. Although most Americans pride themselves on being English, some differences made the colonials feel inferior, ashamed of their simplicity when compared with the sophistication of London. They also came to appreciate the greater equality of their society and the more representative character of their governments. If it was good to be English, it was on balance better still to be English in America. Differences between England and America began with the economy. So England's huge financial institutions and corporations, growing factories, mines, tenant-based commercial agriculture is very sharp contrast to the mostly humble economic activity in British North America. England has a more developed economy that fosters growth of cities, especially London, that boasts about 675,000 people in 1750. About 90% of all 18th century colonials live in towns of fewer than 2,000. So the more advanced economy of England draws the colonies in the parent country together, though. Americans are very eager to acquire British-made commodities with the per capita consumption of imported manufacturing rising about 120% between 1750 and 1773. And so people of all classes are, are demanding and indulging in small luxuries like a tin of tea, a pair of gloves, a bar of Irish soap, things like that. And then there are people of no means. You know, in England, they're everywhere. You know, London is teeming with filth, crime, desperate poverty, the poor and unemployed, as well as pickpockets of prostitutes are all over the place in the taverns, the slums, the brothels, the contrast between the luxury enjoyed by a few wealthy Londoners and misery of so many disquiets a lot of colonial observers. So new wealth and the inherited privileges of the landed aristocracy in England makes for deepening class divisions. 2% of England's population owns 70% of the land. By right of birth, English aristocrats claim membership in the House of Lords and certain powerful gentry families dominate the other branch of Parliament which is the House of Commons and the colonies have their own prominent families but no titled ruling class holding the political privilege by hereditary right and if England's upper classes live more splendidly the lower classes are larger and worse off than those in the colonies less than a third of England's inhabitants belong to the middling class of traders, professionals, artisans, tenant farmers. More than two-thirds struggle for survival at the bottom of society. Um, but in contrast, colonial middle class counts for about three-fourths of the white population here. So with land being cheap, the labor scarce wages for both urban and workers is 100% higher <laughs> in America than in England. It's a lot easier for colonials to accumulate savings and farms of their own. So colonials are fascinated and at the same time repelled by English society. You know, they gush over the grandeur of these aristocratic estates and import suits of livery for the servants, tea services for wives, wallpaper for drawing rooms. But colonials recognize that England's ruling classes purges their luxury and leisure at the cost of the rest of the country. And even in his autobiography, Benjamin Franklin paints a very devastating portrait of the degraded lives of fellow workers in a London print shop who 
drown out their disappointments by drinking throughout the workday, even more excessively on the Sabbath, and then observing the holiday of St. Mondays to nurse their hangovers. And like Franklin, a lot of colonials regarded the idol among England's rich and poor alike as being omniscient of this degenerate nation. Colonials were almost of two minds about English, England's government. They praised the English constitution as the basis of all liberties. They're alarmed by the actual workings of English politics. In theory, England's balanced constitution gives every order of society a voice of government. The crown represents the monarchy and the house of lords, the aristocracy. House of Commons represents the democracy, the people of England. Americans like to think their colonial governments mirrored the ideal English constitution. Most colonies did have a royal governor who represents the monarch in America and a bicameral legislature made up of a lower house and an upper house. The democratically elected assemblies like House of Commons stood for popular interests, whereas the councils, some of which were elected, others appointed, were more like the House of Lords. But these formal similarities mask the real differences between English and colonial governments. In any showdown there with their assemblies, most royal governors had to give way because they lacked the government offices and contracts that buy the loyalty. Colonial legislatures buy additional leverage since all of them retain the authority to levy taxes. Widespread ownership of land means more than half the colony's white adult male population can vote. The larger electorate makes it more difficult to buy votes. So the colonial electorate is even more watchful. Representatives have to reside in the districts that they serve. And if you even receive binding instructions from their constituents about how to vote. Most Americans are pretty pleased with their inexpensive representative colonial governments, you know, but they are horrified by the conduct of politics in England. You know, because there's webs of patronage and corruption that compromise the whole system. Few Britons give the colonists as much thought as the colonists give them. You know, this few who think about America believe colonials resemble the savage Indians more than the civilized English. The same ignorant indifference contributes to England's haphazard administration of their colonies. You know, aside from passing an occasional law to regulate trade or restrict manufacturing... Parliament makes real no effort to assert their authority in America. For the colonies, it's a very chaotic, inefficient system that rests lightly on the shoulders of most Americans. Southern planters are obliged to send their rice, indigo, and tobacco to Britain only, but they enjoy favorable credit terms and knowledgeable marketing from English merchants. Colonials are prohibited from finishing iron products and exporting hats and textiles, but they have little interest in developing domestic industries. Americans are required to import all manufactured goods through England, but by doing so, they acquire high-quality goods at low prices. So at little sacrifice, most Americans are obeying these imperial regulations. And following the policy of benign neglect, British Empire rumbles along to the satisfaction of most people, both sides of the Atlantic, Economic growth political autonomy keeps most white Americans happy being English, despite their misgivings about the motherland. Uh, if imperial arrangements had remained as they were in 1754, then the empire may have just kind of stuttered on indefinitely. But something important was changing, both within the British world and the international order as well. For decades... The European imperial wars were finding their way to America almost kind of as an afterthought. 
Colonial officers, traders, land speculators, would-be pioneers, they're regularly seizing on news of the latest European conflict as an excuse to attack Spanish or French or British counterparts in the borderlands of North America. Interests of kings and queens had to be served, of course. By and large, it's easier to exploit war for local or personal purposes on the far margins of European empires. So when Indian leaders were joining in a fight for profit or revenge or to please another colonial ally or something, they were putting their own people at risk. So as all North Americans were learning, you know, the outcome of the struggles could be determined by men they would never see. These diplomats sipping drinks, you know, around mahogany tables in European capitals. Victories, defeats, territories won or lost, all of that could be and often was undone in treaty talks in Paris, Madrid, or London. And the message was clear. Great imperial struggles began in Europe and ended in Europe. And America followed. Though few recognized it in 1754, this older model was about to be cast aside and swept away. That year marks the beginning of yet another imperial war. One that wasn't begun in Europe, but in the American borderlands. And rather than following events, this time Indians were proving decisive to the war's origins the entire course of it and its outcome. So rather than the conflict ending with a return to the status quo, this time war would produce changes greater than anyone could have anticipated. In waging the war and managing its aftermath, London would pursue policies that made it difficult and ultimately impossible for its American subjects to remain within the empire. So that wraps up today's podcast. I know it was a long one, but it's about what you would get in an hour-long lecture in a class. So I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Stay tuned for the next one, which is going to start off looking at the French and Indian War leading into the American Revolution. See you guys next time. Bye.